Hey everyone, you're listening to the Climbing Advocate Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Horgan. This show brings you advocates from across the country to speak about their experiences and advocacy work that happens beyond the crag. This includes climbing advocates that work on a local scale, policy professionals, athletes, and all others in between that have a deep love for the climbing environment. My aim is to connect more climbers to the work that these advocates do and inspire everyone that no matter how big or small, they have an opportunity to get involved and do their part. This show is brought to you in partnership with Access Fund. For nearly 30 years, Access Fund has been the organization that has kept our beloved climbing resources conserved and cared for. From stewardship to influencing climbing policy and educating current and new climbers on the best responsible behavior, Access Fund is on it. As they say, no crag is too big or too small to not have its interests represented. Support Access Fund by visiting accessfund.org and by supporting a local climbing organization. The show is also supported by Gnarly Nutrition. We want to thank Gnarly Nutrition for being a supporter of Access Fund and the Climbing Advocate Podcast. Gnarly Nutrition and its employees recognize that it is a privilege to visit and recreate in outdoor spaces. They believe that these spaces should be protected and safe for all to recreate in. Gnarly Nutrition. Want more. Do more. Be more. Hey everyone, welcome to the latest installment of the Climbing Advocate Podcast, episode number 26, a conversation with Access Fund's Executive Director, Chris Winter. I wanted to have Chris on the show today to do a little recap of 2020. I thought it would be a good way to have the leader of the organization on to round out what was 2020. It was a tough and heavy year for so many people, either on a personal level uh, if you own a business or on an organizational level, there's a lot of uncertainty surrounding organizations and other nonprofits, you know, such as Access Fund or any other nonprofit out there that largely depend on donations and grants to keep operations going and to keep the lights on. It could be it was a pretty uncertain uncertain time. I work for a nonprofit myself, so completely empathize and understand where people might have been feeling this past year on any one of those levels. But despite having to think quickly on their feet and react to the unpredictable events of last year, Access Fund continued to find a way to stay resilient and accomplish so many things. Chris has only been in his position for a couple of years now, and halfway through his tenure, he had a lot thrown at him. The organization had a lot thrown at them. And how Access Fund responded to all these events really, really shows their values and character. And as Chris says, paraphrasing here, but climbers often face adversity and tough situations, but they know how to remain resilient and press forward, whether it's running it out above some shaky gear or just taking that first step off the ground. Small steps go a long way and climbers know how to do that. So of course, we talk about how the pandemic affected the climbing community how the racial injustices we witnessed last year impacted the climbing community, and how the popularity of the sport has led to overcrowding and severe impacts to our resources, which in turn has led to the need for long-term stewardship planning and establishing strong relationships with land managers, which of course Access Fund has done and has been doing for, for several decades now. And Chris is focused on this and focused on building an organization that can continue to execute this very high level of work for many more decades to come. Chris and I 
haven't had the chance to have a one-on-one in the past before. So I really enjoyed our conversation and I hope you all do as well. So allow me to introduce you all to Access Funds Executive Director, Chris Winter. Enjoy. <laughs> I know that it was a little weird. Um, but yeah, I mean, you just got to you just got to take advantage of it when the conditions are good, even if it feels a little weird. We yeah, were in, uh, yeah. My wife and I were in Eldo for Christmas Day. And it nice. was just amazing. I mean, it was so beautiful. There was nobody there. Uh, yep. The conditions were perfect. Yep. Uh, it was it was awesome. Yeah, as long as you just chase the sun and you're good to go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right on. So you mentioned that uh, you're from Seattle. Did you spend sp- spend a lot of time there growing up, or did you bounce around a little bit? So where where are you from? And uh, yeah, when did, when did climbing come, come into your life? <laughs> so, um, well, I was born in Seattle. Uh, that was in the early '70s. Uh, my dad was a climber. He had a bunch of climber friends in Seattle back at that time. And, um, you know, in the seventies, it was really all about, um, alpinism, Himalayan trips. Um, so a lot of my dad's friends uh, and my dad were doing trips over to, um, Asia coming back with slideshows and stuff. Uh, and so I was just kind of exposed to that as a little kid. And, um, also, uh, my family had just been climbing and skiing. My dad's uh, father, my grandfather also was really in a spend of time in the mountains. So that was a big attraction for, um, for my family to move to Pacific Northwest. And so I was kind of like indoctrinated into that lifestyle early. Uh, and then when I was relatively young, like seven or eight, uh, my father got a job in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Uh, and so uh, my family picked up and moved um, out East. And um, I was pretty much raised in Pittsburgh until I graduated from high school. Oh, wow. So yeah, that was a big transition. Uh, and so, you know, we were talking about skiing a little bit earlier and, um, uh, Pittsburgh had this ski hill, you know, like an hour, an hour and a half outside of town called seven Springs. And, uh, that was just kind of my refuge. I was spending as much time there as I could pretty much all the way through from, uh, when I moved to Pittsburgh until when I graduated from high school. So it was just all about skiing. And then, uh, my family had a sailboat on the East coast also. So we spent a lot of time sailing, um, which was pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I was just always outside in one way or another, even though I was living in Pittsburgh and, um, spending as much time in the mountains as I could, even small hills around there. So, um, I ended up finding climbing, uh, again, kind of when I was in college, I w- went to college in upstate New York at Cornell and they had this, um, uh, relatively new climbing wall, uh, at the university there, uh, which is a, kind of a funny story. It was called the Lynn Seth climbing wall. And so when I got to college, I started climbing inside a little bit. Uh, and uh, yeah, I just kind of went with it from there. Nice. Well, yeah, I, it's amazing those hidden gems you can find in the kind of unsuspecting areas like Pittsburgh. You got skiing. Yeah. I, I found out this past year that there's a lot of climbing around Pennsylvania, a lot yeah. of good bouldering, and I guess some, some rope climbing as well. Um, and I just, you know, I follow you on the social media and I see you spent some time up in Acadia and that's, is that, uh, that seems like a pretty special area to you as well. Yeah. I love that place. And, um, you know, it's just, um, kind of dumb luck. I mean, my grandparents, uh, my, on my father's side lived in Ithaca, New York for a long time. And, and, um, they just built this little cabin on Mount Desert Island in the mid sixties, um, before anybody really knew about the place, uh, a little two bedroom one bath uh, cabin on um, the southwest side of Mount Desert Island. And so that has just been passed down through my family. 
And awesome. uh, my wife and I now get a chance to go up there, you know, at least once a year and enjoy it. Um, and it's amazing. I've been going there since I was a little kid. And then all of a sudden, you know, at some point when I started rock climbing, I looked around and I was like, oh man, this place has really good rock climbing too. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, we started climbing every time we went up there and, uh, it, the climbing there is really cool. Um, the rock, especially on the precipice, the South wall, of the precipice is just incredible pink, um, granite. Um, and there's, you know, it's like a 400 foot wall or 300 foot wall. So there's like, you know, a bunch of multi-pitch roots, um, lots of crack lines, some hard face climbing and, uh, and it's just super beautiful right by the water. So it's, uh, it's a really special place. Yeah. I was going to say, that's a special experience climbing above water like that. Yeah. I, uh, I went to the boundary waters this, this past, uh, S- September for my honeymoon mm. and we stopped at, uh, we stopped at one of the state parks on our way out and they got some cliffs above the above lake superior yeah like, yeah what a what a cool i i gotta i gotta try it sometime gotta get out there and do some cliff climbing or yeah, some like i've heard about climbing. um i've heard about that place uh lake superior uh, and there's apparently some pretty cool some pretty cool climbing out there in acadia you know it's um uh otter cliffs is the most popular spot for climbing right above the water mm-hmm. and uh you kind of wrap in it's right on the main uh tourist road and it's um it's pretty cool. It's super beautiful. But then there's another place called Great Head, which is not far from there at all, and it's way more off the beaten path. Um, you don't have the kind of guided parties you do at Otter Cliff, and so it's a little bit more remote. And there's a couple routes where you just um you just wrap in and pull the rope and uh, climb out, and you're like on this little shelf right above the water, and waves are crashing at low tide. Yeah, uh, it's a pretty wild feeling. Cool, very yeah. cool. Right on. So you mentioned you went to Cornell, and mm-hmm. I know. Uh, you've spent uh, a number of years, I don't, I don't know if decades, you've gotten to decades or not, as a, as a lawyer yeah. prior to your job with with Access Fund. What was your experience as an environmental lawyer? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I graduated from Cornell, took kind of like a gap year and pretty much went skiing, lived in Squaw Valley for a year, which was pretty amazing, and mm-hmm. then ended up in law school. Um, and that was in, I started law school in 1995, graduated in 98. And uh, started working for a private firm in Portland, Oregon, um, practicing environmental law, which I was really into. Um, and I did that for a couple few years uh, and then quit and started a nonprofit um, conservation uh, law firm, basically, uh, in Portland with a friend of mine called the Craig Law Center. And um, the whole focus of that organization was just to act as lawyers for other um, citizen and conservation groups recreational clubs, um, all kind of public interest organizations. And we went to court for them on all, all kinds of different public land management and environmental issues. Um, so that was really fun. Did that for 20 years. Um, did a lot of really amazing work all over uh, the West Coast and the Arctic and uh, Pacific Northwest. And um, mentored a lot of amazing young attorneys and um, passed off the organization to um an incredible woman who's now serving as executive director. So got to kind of, um, uh, see it through from, you know, from, uh, being born and uh, nurtured into a more mature organization and then passing it off to a new generation of leadership. So that's wow, pretty cool. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, as you know, since the, uh, since access fund is a land trust, did you do any, just kind of curious, my own personal curiosity here, did you do any consulting or any, uh, lawyer work for any land trust? No, we were pretty much focused on litigation um, that entire time. We did some advising on um, forming nonprofit organizations, 
didn't really do much um, uh, work with land trusts. Occasionally, we would get into a transaction where you know there was a property deal that was um, a negotiated solution to a dispute, uh, and then you know we would kind of help to set up uh, the deal, the contours. But then we we usually turn that over to um, you know some other attorneys who were experts in that area. And so one of the reasons I was attracted to the Access Fund actually is because, um, you know, our land trust status uh, was a new area for me. It's a really amazingly powerful tool to have in the toolbox. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's been really fun uh, to get my feet on the ground and just learn about how the land trust side of the organization runs. It's, um, It's a pretty amazing story. Yeah, yeah, it's it's cool. It's uh, this nexus of you, you know, you guys obviously do a lot of public land advocacy, but yep. this private land side is a whole another component that I think might get overlooked uh, quite often. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, and it's it just depends kind of on the um, unique circumstances of any particular situation. You know, you find yourself dealing with um, a crag or a boulder field. Um, somewhere in the country, and it's not always the same solution that you need in order to protect that place and make sure climbers have access. So, the land trust um, and the climbing conservation land programs really allowed us to go into places in the southeast and the east coast where we might not otherwise have the ability to get things done. And because we have, you know, a, um, a sizable chunk of money set aside, uh, we can go in there and just buy up private property. And help LCOs um, purchase crags, so it's pretty cool and amazing, and, and totally unique. I mean, it's just there's there's no other organization that can even come close to offering that kind of um, impact for communities. Yeah, but I was just about to say, yeah, very unique, and like you you said it unintentionally, but intentionally is like yeah, east east coast, east side of the east side of the country, where there's not as much public land yeah. as out west, and yeah, it's it's it requires a level of creativity to make these transactions go down with uh, land. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Just like swaps, uh, just trading lands. I don't know. I think I work for a land trust too. So I, yeah, I have a a perspective on how we kind of trade lands back and forth between like maybe the forest service or TPL or that kind of thing to make things happen. Yeah. I mean, a lot of times, you know, what we're doing at the access fund is stepping in when, you know, somebody in a family passes away or, uh, there's some other, um, event that comes up that creates a, um, an opportunity to pick up a piece of land under a short timeline uh, because, you know, something happened. Uh, And so because we have this chunk of money sitting aside, what we can do is kind of pull on that, um, pull on that funding to take advantage of these short-term opportunities and to secure the land. And then over time work to transfer it into public ownership. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so uh, because, you know, there were some folks in the organization 10, 15 years ago who had a lot of vision they said, we're going to pull together this, this um, pool of money that we'll manage and that will allow us to respond to these short-term opportunities. And then once we have the land protected and secured, um, when it's facing a risk, then we can work towards um, long-term permanent conservation as public land. So it's just such a really, it's such a cool program. It is, it is. And I, I, I really think that the climbing world, our resources, our community would look a hell of a lot different if Access Fund was not around. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's funny. I like, you know, I, when I moved to Colorado a couple of years ago, I started going down a shelf road in the winter and it was only, you know, one or two trips down there. And then, you know, I, I started to learn the story about um, Cactus Cliff and, the, and that was one of the um, Access Fund's earliest transactions is buying Cactus Cliff from some of the ranchers down there 
and yeah. uh, turning that over to the BLM and permanently protecting hundreds of uh, high quality climbing routes um, as public land. And not only is it protected as public land, but it's been managed basically since that time for climbers. Uh, and so that's a huge success story where the Bureau of Land Management has really um, focused on managing a very unique place specifically for the needs of climbers. And it's been a huge success story. Right on. Well, I wanted to have you on the show today to help recap the happenings from yeah. this past year. The ups, the downs, the good, <laughs> bad, and the ugly. 2020. <laughs> so, uh, 2020, yes. Uh, <laughs> um, so let's bring it back to almost a year ago. Yeah. It's December 31st, 2019, and you're ready to jump into 2020. And I know organizations don't always work on a calendar year. Your fiscal year might be different, but I think just you know personally and organizationally, there is a sense of feeling of moving into a new year. So what was on Access Fund's agenda for 2020? What was, what was top priority for you all? Yeah, I mean, so back, you know, when we were looking forward at the end of 2019, I mean, we were really excited about the year ahead. And there was a lot of things on the plate that we were getting ready to dig into. So um, on the policy front, um, you know, despite the fact that we're dealing with a um, pretty divisive political environment, we still had hopes of getting some cool things done in Congress in Washington, D.C., um, in 2019, we got the Dingle Act, John D. Dingle Act, through Congress, and that was um, 2.3 million acres of public land protected. Um, much of that is wilderness, um, and we got wilderness climbing protections written into law for the first time, uh, which is a huge deal. Uh, and so we were looking at um, taking and building on that momentum and going into 2020 and trying to get some, some additional work done in Washington, D.C., uh, and so one of the things that we wanted to do was to work on the Great American Outdoors Act. Uh, and that actually did get done during 2020, which is a huge success story. And that ended up being $2.8 billion per year in funding for public lands. And that includes $900 million of dedicated funding per year for the Land and Water Conservation Fund. Uh, and so that was a major objective for us going into 2020. And, um, you know, we got derailed early and we weren't sure what was going to happen, but we were able to um, refocus after um, figuring out, you know, how it was going to work during the pandemic, and, and we managed to get that done. So that was a um, pretty big success story. Mm-hmm. Huge. Yeah. How do you uh, how do you decide what what needs to be focused on next? Like overcrowding and yeah. stewardship is a big thing. Land acquisitions. Is there? I mean, it's all kind of working together, I guess. But is there some kind of way you all decide? Like, okay, we need to focus on this for the next three to six months, and then this yeah. afterwards, work on this simultaneously. How? Do, what does that look like? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a mishmash of things. But you know, we're talking about 2020, and and um, the pandemic was um, uh, unpredictable in a lot of ways. And a lot of times, you know, we prefer to be more forward thinking and strategic. Um, but the pandemic forced us to react to changing circumstances all around us. The world was um, just um, tossed upside down, uh, not just from the pandemic, but from the racial justice movement and, um, and you know, the political climate. So um, when we got into 2020, and you, know, you, you mentioned stewardship, one of the things we did not realize when we got into the pandemic in early 2020 was the avalanche of people that were going to be going outside as the restrictions loosened in order to just um, take care of themselves 
as we emerged from the um, the depths of the initial lockdowns. And so I don't think any of us really fully understood what the pandemic was going to mean for outdoor recreation and stewardship. Uh, and so it turned into this sudden moment where we were just all looking around saying, wow, this is really going to change the game a little bit for outdoor recreation. And the number of people that were just spending time outside was just so dramatically increased. It was through the roof. And so we realized at the access fund that we had to step up and react and make stewardship a much more um, important central part of the dialogue moving forward, especially for the rest of 2020. Uh, And I think that's going to continue to be the case. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's uh, overcrowding and impacts to our climbing resources. Certainly not something that's exclusive to 2020 that takes years and years to build to have those kind of impacts. And yeah, going along with these big issues of 2020, there was, I saw like a tagline in recent access fund ads and campaigns saying a more sustainable future for climbing. And between COVID, social justice issues that we saw this past year, wildfires, other natural hazards that we, that we saw. And it's, 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 it all points towards a need for a more sustainable future for climbing. It's inclusive of all those things. Like you said, a, a COVID kind of came out of left field. I mean, you weren't sitting there December 31st, 2019, expecting that really. Right. I mean, it was happening, I think at that point, but not, it wasn't this close to home yet. And of course, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, all those things certainly weren't planned for. Uh, the wildfire season we had this it was, yeah, all this stuff is really makes you uh, reflect and have to step up. To I mean, and we had been, you know, we had been talking about at the Access Fund and planning and working on um, the increase in popularity of the sport for quite some time. Yeah. I mean, it's not a new issue, right? That the fact that climbing suddenly has grown over the last 10 years, but uh, I think uh, the tremendous overnight growth we saw in the number of people outdoors as a result of the pandemic was definitely new. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so um, thankfully, you know, Access Fund has kind of put itself in a position of being able to step up and respond um, because we have a pretty mature stewardship program, three trail teams that work in the field 10 months a year, you know, all these relationships with land managers, we know how to um, improve trails and take care of climbing areas and, and help uh, improve infrastructure. So we have all those tools in place, but oh, we just realized, man, this is just um, exploding all around us. We really need to step it up. Right. Yeah. There's, there's that, there's that part. And I, I think just discussing the, the, uh, yeah, the thought of a pandemic pushing people outside, just really, it's something to like almost leverage in a way like, Hey, Look at how much this stuff is valued by people. Yeah. And I think you can bring that to our lawmakers and congressmen and women to make a stance and make a point like access stewarding these areas is so incredibly important. Yeah, I I totally agree with you. And, um, you know, over the last couple of years, public lands and outdoor recreation has been one of the few things that can get bipartisan support in Washington, D.C., And so you're completely right. I mean, the policymakers um, love these issues because they're so broadly supported by the public. And I think the outdoor rec community um, has to take a lot of credit for helping to build a broad coalition in support of our issues over the last five to 10 years. Mm -hmm. Uh, That also means we're partially responsible for getting all these people outside and having um, (laughs) an impact on these special places. And so we have an opportunity to really take advantage of the political power we've helped to build, but we also have an incredible responsibility to step up 
and take care of these places and not just um, push all that responsibility for stewardship off onto the land management agencies. Um, As the outdoor recreational community, we have to take the reins and step up and do that hard work ourselves in partnership with the land managers or, um, you know, version 2.0 of the access challenge is going to be closures and restrictions from overcrowding and overuse. And that's what we're looking at right now. And so, you know, at the access fund, we're thinking 10, 15, 20 years down the road, um, if we don't have a robust stewardship program, if climbers aren't stepping up and taking care of our own impacts first, then we're going to basically force the land managers into regulating us um, just in order to regulate the number of people out there and the impacts on the landscape. So we have to be forward looking to take control of the situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is kind of a double-edged sword. I, I love seeing new climbers. I love seeing this community grow. But with that comes additional responsibility. That's just yeah. a matter. That's just the the fact of the matter. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it's it's. It, I mean, we can handle it. We can take care of it. We can wrap our arms around it and do a really good job. But we just have to, you know, be intentional and talk about it. And um, you know, it, it's a long term effort. So um, part of the reason that I was I'm so excited about Access Fund is that we have you know formal relationships with the federal land management agencies. We have 30 years of experience and credibility. And, um, you know, we're in a really good position to help lead the climbing community into this conversation with land managers about how to um, both promote outdoor rec and take care of these amazing spots for, um, for years to come. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that reflected well in, in uh, climb the hill this year. I helped Eric with, with a couple of things and his, and his component of the yeah. climb the hill event. And I got a kind of an inside look on how, how things were working there. And I can't remember the number, but he's he, like hundreds, he said of land yep. managers signed up for that workshop. I mean, they are open ears, ready to listen. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, we had hundreds of land managers sign up for a virtual workshop on climbing management and, um, and the land managers want to help figure this out. Uh, and there's so many of them around the country that are now, um, uh, working with climbers and, and with climbing resources on public lands all over the place. So it's a, it's a really cool opportunity. And I think more and more, we're all, we're also going to see people in lane management agencies being climbers themselves. Uh, and I think that's also a really cool thing to see. And that's going to help us, um, just, uh, build bridges with the lane management community. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I feel like I've heard from people like not land managers, uh, per se, but, just in, in, in on Capitol Hill, they're meeting more and more folks in, in these uh, kind of high power positions, I guess, they're like as assistants to to Congress, Congress people that they, who are outdoor enthusiasts who are climbers themselves. And they, they just totally get what's going on. I mean, I have had Congress people reach out to me and express enthusiasm about climbing, you know, folks who spend time in the mountains themselves and right. staffers. And uh, folks who work for land management agencies. So it's, it's, um, it's a great community and our community is growing and um, yeah, we can, we can really get some cool things done, you know, protecting all this public land for outdoor recreation and making sure that we have um, a certain amount of balance in how we're managing those public resources over the long term is, um, is a, it's a, it's a nonstop job. It's not like you, <clears throat> you know, it's not like you, suddenly say, okay, we've, we've gotten the job done. We can check the box and move on to something else. I mean, working on public land management is a um, nonstop job always will be there for us to um, dig into. And it's just a responsibility um, for all of us to take care of these places. So uh, we got to be set up for the long term to, to do that year after year. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of these things, a lot of these issues are just management points. 
they're exactly that. They're not problems or issues to be solved, but rather be managed. Yeah. And management, yeah, just takes year after year and consistency and showing up in persistence. Exactly. Exactly. So that's, you know, for the access fund, I mean, you know, when I step back and think about um, as executive director, what I'm trying to do at the access fund is to, you know, set up an organization that has that kind of consistency and staying power and expertise um, and staff leadership to be able to plug into those conversations year after year after year indefinitely. Uh, and um, it's, it's amazing to see what's gotten done in the last 30 years. And um, I just hope the organization and what I'm trying to help create is an organization that'll be there for the next 30 years. And so climbers always have a consistent seat at the table and a voice um, mm-hmm. in how our lands are managed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you work with uh, an amazing group of people. Yeah. That, uh, I, I've met the board. I've met some of the board members. I've met a lot of the staff. I've considered several of them my friends now. It's they're, they're wonderful people to work with who are extremely passionate about this stuff. So you wrote a couple articles uh, fairly recently uh, reflecting on some of the topics we just discussed. Yeah. Um, just very thoughtful thoughtful articles addressing a number of these things. Uh, one called weathering 2020 climbing style. Yeah. <laughs> the first sentence in that article is uh, something I don't have it pulled up in front of me, but it was something like 2020 has been one big year of suck. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you go into some more details from there and you talk about just, you know, those awesome just metaphors and uh, comparing these big issues to how we face objectives as climbers and, and so on and taking small steps can go a long way. Do you want to add any more substance to what that article was about? You know, it was just something that I was feeling at the time. And I think I've been feeling it um, throughout 2020 as we deal with all these uh, challenges and adversity and in talking to a lot of my friends and, and folks I work with, you know, they feel it too. And it's when things get really bad um, as climbers, we like to go climbing. Uh, and I don't know if it's necessarily an escape, maybe, maybe it's an escape for some folks, but I, I just feel like, you know, when we're dealing with all these things around us that we don't have a lot of control over when we go climbing and challenge ourselves uh, and put ourselves in these remote places, we have to just rely entirely on ourselves and we control our own destiny and outcomes. And it's a really empowering, beautiful experience. Uh, and so I just was, you know, thinking about how there's lessons that I think we can pull from that uh, when it comes to dealing with 2020. Uh, and a lot of that is just making that first step, taking that first step on a long route, um, taking the first step and planning you know, your next adventure, committing to just leaving your house and stepping outside. I think all of those, uh, all of those small steps are super empowering and remind us that we have control over not only what we do, but how we look out on the world. And, um, you know, we can deal with all this adversity and just take a super negative view and view the world as crumbling around us. Or we can look out on the world and say, hey, you know what? It's still beautiful out there. I'm still going to go explore it. And I'm just going to take this first step towards doing something that I'm really passionate about. There's so many times in in my past when I've just um, turned to climbing when I'm dealing with some difficult stuff. And and I think that's a big part of what what makes us all so passionate about it. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And it was it was a tough time earlier this spring. Just yeah, the stay at home order was was in place, and then things starting to loosen up a little bit. I felt like I was more stressed then than ever. Uh, just like 
it was just kind of like in this limbo of okay it's like not very kosher to go outside but like yeah you do it responsibly you can it was just like oh what what the hell do i do here i just know like, it was it was a tough time it was a tough time you know and i know there, there's there's so many people in our community that are dealing with uh even more difficult circumstances i right. mean i've talked to folks um, in different parts of the country who don't live close to climbing resources, who live in cities, um, who basically had climbing just taken away from them uh, overnight for months at a time. Uh, couldn't go to the gym, couldn't go outside. And I was just feeling for those people. And I think that that's um, something that, you know, those of us who are blessed to live in a place like Colorado, you know, we didn't even really fully grasp um, the impact of the pandemic on folks like that who just couldn't even get outside at all or go climbing at all for six to nine months. It's rough. Uh, and so, you know, just, I was hoping to strike a, a small note of optimism for folks, um, and just say, you know, it's bad now. Um, small steps towards doing what you love and care about the most, um, can really help. Uh, and so, you know, I think over time we will find ourselves looking at this experience in the rearview mirror and I think whatever we can do to continue to be optimistic and positive in small ways between now and then, I think will really help. Yeah, definitely. Well, I think that's what advocacy is is about a lot of the time is taking small steps to, towards the bigger, bigger goal. I want to just ask, just plain and simple, I think this word advocacy uh, is a word that's tossed around a lot. And there's another word that I like to reflect on a lot and it's leadership. Well, how do people define leadership? And I just, I think I want to start asking every guest this question, but what does advocacy mean to you? How would you define advocacy? I, I define advocacy by trying to contribute to something that's bigger than yourself for the people around you. So trying to be a part of something that's about um, leaving a legacy for other people or contributing to other people um, and, and it's not just about yourself. And so I think, you know, in, in our world of climbing advocacy and what we're trying to do with outdoor recreation, that can mean a lot of different things. I think people sometimes think advocacy just means going to Washington, D.C. or just, you know, working on conservation issues. But, you know, I think of being an advocate is um, of any number of different things, just going out and volunteering at a trail day, if that's what you like to do, being part of a local climbing organization and, and being a voice with your local land manager, trying to protect a place for everyone. That's advocacy. Um, the lobbying in DC is an advocate or just, um, you know, being a voice with your friends for um, outdoor recreation and conservation and stewardship. You can be an advocate on social media. So um, I think of it just as plugging into that work that's about um, the bigger picture and everyone's interests and not just about yourself and being part of something that's bigger than just yourself. Love it. Perfect. So another article you wrote is, was entitled, uh, to our community. Yeah. I believe a little bit earlier this year, uh, shortly after, uh, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor and, and all that. Um, and it's something you mentioned in there uh, about a DEI, which of course, if uh, folks don't know, it's diversity, equity, and inclusion. I've had a couple episodes solely focused on that, which has been great. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, you all put a, together a DEI assessment for the Access Fund as an mm-hmm. organization. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit how that assessment was conducted and put together? Was that something done that was in-house? What did that look like? Yeah, we did it in-house, um, and it was led by um, one of our staff uh, staff members, Tamor, who did a fantastic job. And um, 
you know, we, uh, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't motivated by the George Floyd incident. We, this is something we had been working on actually, um, over the last couple of years. Uh, and so it was kind of coincidence that it just happened in 2020, the same year as all these, um, racial justice incidents really blew up on the national scene. But, you know, we wanted to, um, step back and figure out how we were doing as an organization internally on justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. And so, um, it really consisted of a survey to our staff members, uh, asking them for, you know, how comfortable they are with the concepts, um, how they think we're doing as an organization, where they think we can improve, um, and what we've done well. And so, um, you know, we came together as a staff, we worked on what the survey looked like to more let us in that effort of designing it. And then we sent it out. We had, you know, I think almost uh, 100% participation, even though it was voluntary. And then uh, we came back and, and unpacked the results and, um, you know, decided we need to do a couple things here and there. Overall, we're doing fairly well, um, but we can do better. And it helped to just kind of set a baseline for us. Uh, so we have a little bit of quantitative data and some feedback from the staff on, on how we're doing. So it was a really, um, it was a cool learning experience for us. Tamor did a great job. And I think the staff got a lot out of it because they were also able to understand how their colleagues are thinking about these issues. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's one step forward in our journey. Uh, but it was, um, something that I think a lot of us, um, felt good about at the end of the day. Good. That's awesome. Yeah. How do you, uh, have, has, have there been action items, uh, put, put forth, uh, after the, the assessment was completed. How do you put like those thoughts and values yeah. into actionable items? Yeah. So a couple of things that came out of that is that our, our staff who, you know, live all over the country, uh, support, uh, those concepts, share the values of justice and equity, uh, and, um, you know, almost universally believe that it's one of the most important things we need to do in order to, um, advance the organization and make sure that our work is impactful um, but there were some questions over how to kind of make that a um, day-to-day reality of their own personal work for Access Fund. And so, um, you know, so they were saying, we need a little bit more support on how to put this into practice. Uh, and so that was really helpful. And Tamor then moved from that survey into providing some more one-on-one individual support. Uh, and I've plugged into that a little bit too, to just say, okay, here's some things you can do in your day-to-day work to really help move these issues forward. And so as a result of that, for instance, um, Brian Tickle, who's our Texas regional director, was working on an incredible new climbing resource down in Texas, Inks Ranch. And um, he was working on um, uh, developing some routes, working with some route developers down there because it was brand new access to this incredible granite climbing area. And he's like, you know what, we should should do this with a justice and equity lens. We should um, try to find some folks um, from marginalized communities who want to learn about root development because this is an incredible opportunity. Uh, and so I think that's a moment where just because we had been doing some of this work, you know, the light bulb went off and said, let's just mix it up a little bit and really focus on um, sharing this experience with folks who might not otherwise get that opportunity. Um, and so that's kind of a, an example of how that survey led into feedback from the staff that they need more support into a concrete project on the ground you know, that's, um, what we hope to replicate. Very cool. Yeah. I, I learned of another example during the, uh, conference this year. I'm forgetting the gentleman's name, but he's with the Salt Lake Climbers Alliance, uh, running like the bolting program there. And I think he put the same kind of lens on there, getting some marginalized folks out there to learn about root development, rebolting, uh, hardware, all that good stuff. I'm for, uh, forgetting his name. I can't remember his name right now, but yeah, it's uh, two great action items. 
it's it's really fun work, and um, and it's challenging also. And there's ups and downs along the way, and we'll make mistakes. Uh, and so I think you know another part of this is just going into the work with some humility, um, and being open to feedback and um, learning as a result of the process, and hopefully becoming a better organization and better people. Um, and so that's um, I think uh, really uh, interesting fun experience but challenging at the same time yeah good well yeah it's, it's all about getting under your comfort zone another climbing kind of metaphor there. <laughs> yeah exactly running yeah, it out think, of your gear exactly i think a lot of businesses <laughs> and organizations are trying to do the same thing but they get maybe halted like ah oh, we all we all do value this stuff but what is that action item we want to feel like authentic in our in our efforts here and not yep. And you feel like we're just doing this just to check a box and just because it's like a hot topic right now we need to do this like i think folks want to make it sustainable for the long term but they're kind of running into some roadblocks there so maybe they can lean on access fund as you know organization leading by example so it's not all been doom and gloom uh, I've, <laughs> I've, I've reflected on who i've got to interview this year it's been, just been uh amazing to do this show with so many passionate folks and yeah how many episodes open. have you done now uh this is number 26 that's amazing yeah and cool. zachary and jenna did one uh i got that might have been like episode nine or ten so yeah. i have technically done 25 but <laughs> <laughs> it's been awesome it's grown so well and uh just the people i get to meet and chat with is just exceptional yeah and so i get to see so many good things that are happening it's so much positivity that's happening in this community and i think a lot of it was reflected in the top 12 climbing victories of 2020 infographic Yeah, that access fund put together. And there, there was just too many to keep it just to 10. Like, <laughs> you know, who says top 12? It's usually top 10, but you just like, there's, there's 12. Yeah. It's, it's funny when we were, you know, I was working with the team and our, and our um, excellent marketing communications team on the top 10 infographics. And it's, it's always a team effort. I mean, the programs folks are always so excited about what we got done and the marketing folks are excited to tell the stories <laughs> and we're sitting there trying to cut it down to, to 10 and we're like, we just can't get it down to below 12. And we're like, well, whatever, we'll just go with top 12. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, just a few examples. I'm not going to go through all 12, but a few examples on there. Uh, hundreds of hours spent advocating on Capitol Hill, convening the first ever international advocacy conference, yep. which, by the way, Chris, I mean, I had Veronica and Danny on from the Climbing Initiative last month. Yeah. And so I got a insider perspective on how, on, on how some of that came together and everything. Like I was just floored and i was like seriously just moved by that conference this yeah. year i mean I, I attend every year i think i've missed one out of the last six years five or six years and i like i feel like i have a different perspective on what climbing is and what it can be of yeah. course in a good way but wow unbelievable i mean that was just one of those things that was serendipitous because we had actually you know we were supposed to be in chattanooga right. uh, for our annual event this year including the workshops and we had already decided to have an international gathering in Chattanooga. Mm -hmm. And we were going to try to find some money to fly in people from other countries who couldn't afford to come and join us. And we were going to invite people to gather in Chattanooga. And when the pandemic hit, you know, it was just one of these things where it was like, okay, this is the perfect opportunity to really um, lean into this international angle. Uh, and I'm really glad to hear that you thought it was powerful because I thought it was pretty amazing too. 
um, just, yeah. And that initial round table, you know, session where we were just going around and hearing from people from all these different countries, um, about what it means to promote climbing, uh, and what an impact it has on their communities was just, yeah, it was totally amazing. It's totally amazing. Yeah. I mean, some of the stories was like, were tear jerkers. I mean, uh, coming from, come out of Mexico, coming out of Mexico and, uh, and Ecuador, uh, those are to um alejandro and uh now i'm forgetting their name as well um but yeah just just really moving stuff and seeing just the, how what this global community looks like it's just yeah exceptional um so on top of that uh new crag acquisitions and hundreds of climbing areas being preserved around the country this year dozens of climbing areas being stewarded the list goes on and I will, i'll be sure to share that infographic but as the executive director chris like how proud are you of all these accomplishments. <laughs> I mean, I'm so proud. Uh, it's hard to, um, yeah, it's hard to believe how much work we get done with a pretty limited staff and a pretty limited budget. But, you know, I'm, I'm really proud of all the accomplishments. Um, the staff is so great. Um, but I got to be honest, I mean, I'm, I'm probably more proud of just how the whole organization, board, staff, our um, donors and supporters and volunteers have just rallied and pulled together through the pandemic. Uh, and worked so hard and um, been so committed to the organization and the community and all the work, um, despite dealing with so many challenges. So the top 12 victories are amazing, and that's definitely the fruits of the labor. But man, it is just taking so much um, personal resilience and hard work and, um, uh, and partnership and teamwork um, to stay on track during 2020. And I think because we're all so committed at the staff and board level, the organization is thriving. And um, that's what I'm most proud of. I think that's, it's really been um, uh, a success story dealing with so much adversity so well. And that doesn't mean we haven't made mistakes and and dealt with some burnout, but um, I'm just really proud of the team for persevering so well. And you've only been in the, what, how long have you been in the position? Just a couple, two, three, two, three years? Yeah, I'm just coming up on my two year anniversary. So I started basically January 1st, 2019. (laughs) <laughs> so I oh had you know, about 14 months under my belt when the pandemic hit. Um, and, uh, you know, you could look at that um, one of two ways. Um, I chose to look at that uh, and say, gosh, I'm really thankful it didn't happen with just two months under my belt <laughs> as executive director. So I felt like, OK, I've got, you know, like a rapport with the staff. I understand the organization. The board supports me. So I'm in a, I'm in a good position to help weather the storm here. Um, but still, you know, it's like, man, I, I had plans of, you know, got these, um, got these plans in place and then you got to just shift gears and react to the situation, um, basically a year into the, into my tenure. So, um, I, I hope at the end of the day, we'll look back at this and say, oh, access fund did great. And it was really hard and it was kind of scary, but, um, but we did it and the organization and our community are better off because of it. Yeah. Well, that's, that's something to be incredibly proud of, I think. And yeah, it came early on and I, I, it's been a year of resilience, no doubt. Yeah. And it's still, kind of, yeah, just, uh, your tenure there is still, is still pretty fresh. So like you're really diving into the deep end of the pool here pretty, pretty <laughs> early on, but I think you've, you've touched on a couple of buzzwords that I really like and resilience baselines. Yeah. I think like the, the definition of resilience is, is shifting, bouncing back with changing and shifting baselines. And I, I think this organization has done an incredible job at that. Yeah. It's, um, um, you know, just a concrete example is <clears throat> when COVID hit, which was early March. I mean, I think we pretty much pivoted the whole organization 
from top to bottom towards um, responding to the pandemic um, right right away, almost on a dime. So that meant like, you know, our regional directors in the field, people like Zachary and Mike Morin and Joe Samtero, they were basically turning towards supporting the LCO networks in their regions through the pandemic, reaching out, connecting people, encouraging conversations so that we don't just go into our um, silos and isolate ourselves, but really making an effort to make sure people felt connected during that time. And then, you know, we just did so much public education and engagement around what it meant for climbers, um, how to climb safely and responsibly during the pandemic, what closures were in place all over the country, you know, um, trying to get information from public health experts out to the climbing community in various different forms, working with land managers to understand what was happening. So, I mean, it was just, um, it was, it was uh, amazing how quickly we had to basically pivot towards this, um, this new piece of work. Oh man, my hats off to you. So what's what's your what's your vision for Access Sun moving forward? What where's where's the climbing community headed? Where would you like to see it head? So I mean, we talked touched on this a little bit earlier, but um, you know, the growth in climbing, I think, is the fundamental um, external piece that's just driving where we have to go as an organization in the future. Um, and it's the same thing that we as a community, I think, are dealing with as well. And the growth of climbing, in my mind, is a, is a good thing. I mean, climbing is so good for, um, for all of us. We get so much out of it. Um, it's a great way to stay connected to the people we care about the most. Um, it's good for public health. It uh, gets people outside. And it's also um, an amazing um, economic driver for rural communities all over the country. So mm-hmm. we are super optimistic about the future of the sport because it's growing so quickly and the gyms all over the country have, have helped people connect with something that gets them outside in a way that hasn't happened before. So that's a really good story, and we want to help promote that. Um, but the flip side of that, of course, is that we are going to have to deal with um, new challenges. And um, I think one of those is uh, the access restrictions in the old days were basically climbers trying to convince land managers that climbing was a legitimate use of the land. Uh, and we're well beyond that. We've basically, um, in large part, have prevailed in that work. Uh, and now, you know, we have formal memorandums of understanding with all the federal land management agencies, state parks, looks at climbers, um, largely um, as um, one of the one of the primary user groups. So um, we've done a lot of successful work. But now, what we have to do is really um, dig into and lean into the work of taking care of these places. Um, when faced with so many new climbers. Uh, and so, you know, like I said earlier, um, version 2.0, the access restrictions may very well be land managers saying there's too many of you out there now. And, um, and now we have to start to dial it back. And so I think at the Access Fund, we have an amazing opportunity to both take all of this growth and channel that into a way that adds value to the work to promote public lands and conservation and stewardship all over the country, both for outdoor recreation and for those values that we care about more broadly. Um, and on the flip side, you know, we have to deal with the threat that we're creating to those landscapes and be way more intentional with our stewardship and acquisition work. Uh, and so I think that's where we are as an organization. We're just maturing as um, the climbing community itself grows and matures over time. Uh, I think you've uh, said it well right there at the end is taking this use and channeling it, channeling it into something of value. Yeah. Period. 
Yeah. And it's like, you know, this year we, um, you know, we were dealing with 85,000 acres of oil and gas leasing near Moab, you know, which is just one of these potential decisions from a land manager that we looked at and said, that's just the wrong balance. I mean, these are recreational rich lands that are contributing to one of the, you know, most well-known outdoor recreation economies in the country. Why would you go into that landscape and promote oil and gas extraction? Uh, And so, you know, I think partially because the climbers look at themselves as good stewards and advocates for public lands, um, we were able to rally, you know, over 5,000 people to um, write to BLM and say, this is not the right policy decision here to promote oil and gas leasing in this landscape. Uh, and, and BLM backed off and we won that battle. So that's a really great example of how we can um, help to channel all this passion and enthusiasm around climbing into um, advocacy around public lands uh, and the greater good. Uh, and then we can also do that same thing around stewardship um, and, um, and mitigating our own impact on the land. Yes, absolutely. It's a perfect tangible example of what can be done and what can happen when, when folks rally. So like I said, like I said earlier, the climate community would look a whole lot different without this organization around. I have no doubts about that. <laughs> and I said it in the last episode uh, with Veronica and Danny, but I'd like to conclude with it here as well. Let's just not bounce back from 2020, but let's bounce forward. And I also heard it said recently that we also cannot forget 2020. You know, we want to put it in the rearview mirror, want to maybe tuck it down, push it, some of it under the rug and forget about all this chaos and mayhem. But there's so much that has happened this year that just cannot be forgotten about. And we've talked about several of them during our chat today. So I'd say let's keep those things in mind as we bounce forward, not only for ourselves, but also for a more sustainable future for climbing as well. Yeah, I love that. I think bouncing forward, not forgetting about the lessons we've learned from 2020 are just um, so important. Uh, I totally agree with you. And, um, you know, I think a big takeaway for me is just how much um, how much it means to be able to spend time outside with people I care about the most. Having that taken away, even for a brief period of time, um, I think has really helped a lot of us recognize how important that is. And um, I'm going to just embrace that moving forward and, and, and lean into that because I think that's what motivates our work. Okay. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. And thanks to Chris for giving us an insider's perspective on the happenings from 2020. Before I sign off here, I would like to take one minute to highlight something that Chris said that really resonated with me. And that is we have to be ready to deal with the threat that we are creating. Climbers, I think, are just simply bringing more climbers. No one else is bringing climbers but climbers. <laughs> and the finger shouldn't be pointed at anyone, but rather just be ready to chip in when you can with the resources you have. And one of the things Chris said that goes along the same lines as this is this growth that we're seeing can certainly be channeled into something of value. And by taking small steps it will go a long way towards making a more sustainable future for climbing. And one of those small steps you could take right now is becoming a member of the Access Fund. And for as low as $20 a year, I feel like a a salesman of some sorts, for as low as $20 a year, you can support Access Fund and the work they do to keep our climbing resources open and cared for. And lastly, as always, you can let me know what you think of the show by leaving a review and a comment on Apple Podcasts. And if you haven't heard the big news something I'm mighty proud of. 
The show recently surpassed 10,000 downloads and it hit 23 countries last year. So despite everything that was going on in 2020, there were still a lot of successes and it's reflected in everyone's support of the show and also reflected as far as Access Fund goes in their top 12 victories of 2020. If you haven't seen that infographic yet, I linked it up in the show notes so you can check it out there. But they had so many victories, they couldn't keep it to just 10. They had to just they had to narrow it down to 12. They couldn't get it all the way down to 10. So that's pretty awesome. Check it out. It's it's a it's an amazing display of what this organization is capable of. So go ahead and support them. And I want to thank you all again for your support for the show. So until the ne- next episode, take care. Stay safe out there. I'll catch you all next time.